What's up, Vineyard Northwest family? Wilson here. This is the last message in our summer series, Rise of the Church. I dive into Acts 9 and we look at the incredible encounter that Saul has with the Lord on the road to Damascus. And I take some time to ask the question, how do we act like Ananias? I want to be an Ananias. I want to partner with God to bring encounter to other people. So in this message, I share how we can do that. Hope you enjoy it. Good morning, everybody. That was very welcoming. Thank you. All right. Has anyone ever taken their mask off and been like, dang, my face is not as symmetrical as I thought it was? Just take it off and the little, your nose imprint is like an inch to the left. Man, it's disappointing to find that out. All right. So, hey, my name is Wilson. If we've never met before, it's really good to see you. And um, I'm just excited to dive into the book of Acts with you this morning. We've been in a series all summer called The Rise of the Church. And in this series, we've been going through the early part of the church, the book of Acts. And there's these three themes we've tried to pull out and kind of like um, establish as precedents in our life that we would experience the boldness and power of the Holy Spirit that would lead us into great harvest and joy. And then we would know that what comes next usually is difficulty and persecution. And when you see this as a pattern, it won't freak you out when the difficulty and persecution comes. So um, this morning we're concluding the series and we're gonna be talking about uh, the conversion of Saul. So super famous, super notable um, story from the New Testament, the conversion of the Pharisee Saul. And to kind of paint the picture of how um, crazy of a transformation this is, let's look at verse 1 and verse 20 in chapter 9. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, only go to verse 20, three days later, He is immediately, he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying, he is the son of God. So the question I want to ask today and I'm going to ask and answer is, how did that happen in three days time? How did Saul go from, from someone who was literally purposing to murder and kill believers to becoming one himself? And there's going to be like faith released to us this morning for transformation, because that's what we, this is like what this story is. It's a great, incredible story of transformation in the life of a human being. And um, I want more faith for transformation. I don't know about you, but I want to just walk in so much confidence and faith that God wants to transform people, society, um, and, and families, and everything in front of me. So let's pray. Father, you are in the business of transformation. And we're your kids, so we just agree that we're transformation agents and that we're used for transformation. But right now, we just crack our hearts and we turn our hearts to you and we say, give us keys to transformation, Lord. And give us faith right now for transformation in all of our circumstances, all of our relationships, even in um, like systems that seem broken and messed up, Lord. We believe that you can breathe transformation into them. In Jesus' name. Amen. So to really appreciate this radical change in the life of Saul and the transformation that happens, I want us to kind of like zoom out context-wise and kind of like go to the bigger picture, go a couple layers out from this story. What I call this is the kingdom thread. 
Throughout the entire Bible, there's this thread that's being pulled that, and um, this, this consistent storyline about the kingdom of God. See it in the Garden of Eden, and we see it in the, in the book of Acts and all the way in the end of the New Testament, that God's in the business of establishing a kingdom on earth. And there's progressive steps that, he's ta- that he was taking until his son Jesus arrived. And Jesus comes to earth to bring a new kingdom, a new way of life. You know, Adam and Eve, they were supposed to establish the kingdom of God on the earth through the Garden of Eden and spread it all around the earth. They messed up and the kingdom of darkness actually spread out all around the earth. But then Jesus comes back at a specific moment in time to say, no, we're establishing the kingdom. This is going to happen. And we live out that expansion. So Saul is alive in the time of Jesus. Now, we don't think that Saul ever met Jesus. I don't think that Saul ever even heard him preach in person because surely he would have noted that, right? Like somewhere in the New Testament, he would have talked about the times that he heard, heard about Jesus. So Saul comes to Jerusalem after Jesus' death and resurrection, I believe. And Saul arrives and what does he see? He sees his Jewish brothers changing Judaism. That's his perception. Now, actually, they were fulfilling Judaism, you know, like by embracing the Messiah, embracing Jesus, they were embracing the fulfillment of the the Jewish faith and the, the faith of Abraham. But from Saul's perception, they're actually distorting it and changing it and tweaking it. I just want to tell you guys, there's nothing I hate more than people changing things I like, (laughs) right? Like if you're watching a show and they kill a character and you're like, click, I'm done with the show. That was my character. Or like, you know, you go and they take something off the menu item at your favorite restaurant. It's like, no, like, so things that we love, when they get changed, we don't like it, right? So that's what Saul is experiencing. Saul is the Pharisee of Pharisees. He probably has like the Hebrew Old Testament memorized. You know, he has been raised in this environment that is just singularly focused on enforcing the law of God and um, living in in a godly way according to the law. So he comes on the scene and sees his Jewish brothers and sisters starting to follow this guy named Jesus and this guy that said that he was the Messiah and he gets pretty ticked. Okay. And, um, in Acts 8, 1 through 3, we're actually introduced to Saul's character. Well, actually, the very end of chapter 7. But here's what 8, 1 through 3 says. And Saul approved of his, Stephen's, execution. So basically, there's this guy, Stephen, moving in signs and wonders, healing the sick, crazy stuff's happening. And he begins to preach. And they literally, while he is preaching Jesus, they drag him out and stone him to death. I want you to imagine that as I'm preaching right now, the majority of you guys didn't like what I was saying so much that you pulled me off the stage, dragged me to Corinth Avenue and murdered me. That's what happened with Stephen. And you know who led that whole thing? Saul. Saul led that. The first murder of a believer. And then we see that he actually leads the first systematic persecution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. So what Saul is doing is escalating this persecution. He's not just... um, 
yelling at people and uh, like denouncing people and physically attacking people in public, he is now entering their homes. That's intense. Can you imagine someone busting into your home while you're doing house group and dragging you to prison? That's what, that's what he's doing. And in that day, like to do that to women was like a big no-no. You wouldn't like go that far. You know, that just wouldn't be the paradigm of how they operated. They, he would have just been persecuting men. But the fact that it says he was persecuting men and women, it's showing that Saul was like blinded by rage. This was escalating quickly. Well, let's skip all of chapter eight, which Sarah gave an amazing sermon last week about um, Philip. And let's go all the way to the beginning of chapter nine, where the story continues. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest. Doesn't that just feel so intense? Breathing threats and murder. If, I, if you describe someone like that, that's like, like imagine just saying those words out loud about someone. We read them and we're kind of used to the words and we're like, Saul's a bad guy. But I want you to like picture calling someone that that is around. Like this person is very, very, very hostile. They're trying to paint a picture for us of how incredibly oppositional Saul was to the gospel and to Jesus. We, can't, we, we cannot miss that. If we miss the... Um, ISIS fanatic Nazi that Saul was, we miss the power of encounter. And we won't recognize that it, I'm going ahead, okay. So he went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus. So that if he found anyone belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Damascus from Jerusalem, that's 180 miles approximately. That's like walking from here to Lake Erie, okay? So Paul take, Saul takes it from um, persecuting people just that are convenient to persecute in his city to I'm going to actually go on a mission. I'm taking this regional to I'm going, I'm going to go on a journey, a three-day journey or however long it would take to walk and ride your horse there. You know, like that'd be a while to, to persecute. So just imagine for a moment what must have been going on in his heart. Imagine the screwed up, jacked up depravity of Saul's heart in this moment. I'm thinking like as he's on his horse going to Damascus, he's like probably daydreaming about how he's going to inflict pain, punishment and persecution upon Christians. He's probably thinking like, you know, this is what worked in Jerusalem. I found the ringleader. I got them to squeal on their network and blah, you know, like he is obsessed with um, ending this this deviation to the pure religion of Judaism, hell-bent on it. And here's what happens when he's in that state, when he's in that place, bang, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Crazy. Imagine just like being with Saul 
when this happens. All of a sudden, a light shines and a power emits that doesn't just knock Saul down. In Acts 24, we get a more detailed account. Listen to this. Of what ha- like, that's like the Spark Notes version of that encounter. In Acts 26, we, hear, we get a lot more information. Because uh, Saul is retelling, Paul is retelling this. Okay, here's the deal. Saul is a Hebrew name. Paul is a Greek name. Saul went by the name Saul when his primary ministry was to Jews. But you know who Saul's primary ministry ended up being to? Gentiles. So he started going by Paul. So it's just interchangeable. There's, I don't think there's something crazy significant about he became Paul. Nope, he just had a different ministry assignment. So he started being called Paul. Um, so in Acts 26:14, Saul is proclaiming the gospel, telling his testimony to King Agrippa. And here's what he says. And when, he had, when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Okay, there's a couple things I love about this. First, Paul's encounter, his encounter was both public and it was personal. His encounter happened in front of a bunch of people. Several people witnessed it. Several people were even impacted by it. Listen, he says, we had all fallen to the ground. A power came and showed up in that moment that didn't just knock down the target of the encounter. It knocked down to everyone around him. And the Lord begins to speak things to Saul about his destiny and who he is. And I think something I really like about this that I think is significant for us to understand, um, especially since we here at Vineyard, we really, inv- really, really value encounter and that people are whacked by the Holy Spirit and baptized in his presence in a visible way. Um, Other people witnessed it. Like God, it's normal for us to see God doing something to someone else is what I'm getting at. Like sometimes we see God do something to someone else and we get really freaked out. And we're like, why? What's happening? That's not happening to me. Like what's going on here? It's okay, okay? This is what happened to Saul. This is what happened to his buddies. They all got, the encounter was for Saul, but everyone witnessed it. And there was a level of experience for everyone. So when people get encountered by God, we just gotta sit back and look like, cool, do it, Lord. Something's happening over there to them. But then I love this, that, that Jesus says to him, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. So, he says, he says, why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. Two things I want to pull out. It's, why are you persecuting me? Why are you persecuting me? Jesus took it 100% personal when Saul persecuted believers and followers of Jesus. Jesus didn't only take it personal, but he viewed it as persecution and pain on himself. You know what that tells us? We are way more in union with Jesus than I think we're aware of. We are way more in connection and intertwined and interwoven with Jesus and with the Father than I think we walk around aware of. In Luke 16, Jesus says, if they reject you, don't worry, they're really rejecting me. And if they reject me, don't worry, they're actually rejecting my Father. You see, the same, like the Trinity, one of the things the Trinity is supposed to do is give us faith for union with Jesus. We're supposed to see that this thing exists where the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, you know, the Spirit's not the Father, and the Father's not the Son, and the Son's not the Spirit, but they're all God. And 
I am not Jesus and Jesus is not me, but I am in Jesus and Jesus is in me. <laughs> like there's a radical fusion, interconnection, union that we have with Jesus. And when we can sit back into that and live from that place, that's how you overcome sin. That's how you heal the sick. That's how you prophesy. That's how you love the unlovable. When you sit back into union with Jesus and you realize, man, I am intertwined. I'm mystical, baby. Like, I am not, I am not of this earth. Like, by very nature, I am not just human. <laughs> I am a partaker in the divine nature. I'm connected in this deep, mysterious, powerful way with the divine. When we sit back in that, and man, like we just got to repent for not liking that idea because it's a naturalistic, secular, American, Western part of us that doesn't like mysticism, but there's nothing more mystical than the gospel. And so when we just call like as a man, it's, it's crazy, it's mysterious, it's amazing. I'm just gonna sit back in it. We live from so much power. Yeah. And Jesus says to Saul, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. Just raise your hand if you know what a goad is. Cool, like a couple people. So that means that that scripture means absolutely nothing to everyone else. <laughs> goads, they were like a, they're a stick, a prodding thing that farmers and um, uh, shepherds would use, thank you whoever said shepherds, to, I think it was Terry, to um, get cattle to move and sheep to move. It, it was a pointy stick and it was, it was intended to direct them and to tell them where to go. So what Jesus says is, Saul, you're kicking against the goads. Who's the goad? Jesus. He's convicting Saul, he's like, hey, I'm here. I love you. I'm here. Come on, receive me. Like, it's me. I'm, all that studying you've done is to understand me. And Saul is resisting that. You know what I love about that? It shows that Saul was actually in confliction. When Saul was murdering people and denouncing the gospel, he wasn't doing that from a pure heart of devotion to that idea. He was fighting against something inside of him. Do you get that? Do you see what I'm saying? He was convicted. If Saul, the murderer, first systematic persecutor of the church, had a conviction about God deep in there that he was aware of, I just want to tell you that we can have faith for everyone else to have that also. <laughs> you know? So like that person that you look at and you're just like, they are unsavable, they're evil, da 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 da, da. They're kicking against the goads. And you have a choice. Look at their behavior and build up judgment in your heart towards them or look at them as someone who's kicking against the goads and have mercy and love and affection and have a prayer point for them. Amen. Did you know that? That like the person, you know, like whoever you think's the worst, they're actually kicking against the goads. And we can pray from a place of Lord, get them like you got Saul, encounter them. And, and, and our prayers turn from change their behavior which is stupid to pray that, to awaken their heart. Turn their heart to you, Lord. Move in their heart where they're sensitive to you. Awaken their heart to follow you. This is really important, like especially with the political atmosphere we're in and with the polarized atmosphere, you know, like we look at people's behavior and we just want to nail them. We want to we make all kinds of stupid hard decisions about people because of their behavior. Like, I am guilty of that. I make, I let other people's behavior impact how I view them in my heart. 
You know, like, obviously I should recognize people's bad behavior in my brain and in my mind. And I should say, that's not good, that's not godly, that's not cool. But when I let that influence my emotional state towards them, and I start to distort and, and um, twist the image of God in them, I'm going too far. And we all just, we gotta be really sensitive to that. Because as kingdom people, we're not called to like, be like, oh, I know which person to vote for, or like, you know, I'm a Republican, or I'm a Democrat, and I know that it's the best. We're called to be above that. Yeah. And we're called to look at people's hearts and just, oh man, I wanna pray for um, transformation in Donald Trump's heart. I wanna pray for transformation in Joe Biden's heart, Lord. I wanna pray just for blah, blah, blah in Kamala Harris's heart. Lord, thank you that Mike Pence is actually a righteous man. Um, but I just wanna pray for goodness, you know, in people's lives. That is what it turns us to do when we look at people um, as kicking against the goads. Paul called this, don't regard anyone according to the flesh. We once looked at Jesus according to the flesh, but we look at him thus no longer. Now don't look at other people according to the flesh. So Jesus didn't rebuke him, but he touched on the, the thing, the part in his heart that was open, the part of his heart that was kicking against the goads. And then I love this. He speaks to him about destiny. He doesn't talk to him about, he says, why are you persecuting me? But let's move on. I have a mission for you. And in Acts 26, he says all this crazy stuff like, rise, stand on your feet. I've appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so they may turn from darkness to light and from power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. What's Jesus doing when he says all that? In Paul's darkened, messed up state, he's calling out the gold and he's speaking destiny over him. He's moving, it, he's moving past the brokenness in Saul's life and calling him higher, calling him to where he wants him to be. This is really important that we get this in with the prophetic and with our prayers for people and with our heart is that we're not trying to pray for them to, our focus isn't on the bad, our, our focus is on the good that God has for them. And again, I'm not saying na don't be naive and like we need to obviously see evil for evil and corruption and whatever, you know, but when our heart is fixated on that, we're not joining our heart to Jesus because that is not what Jesus' heart is fixated on in people. His heart is fixated on destiny and on an inner conviction, inner desire for him. So he didn't rebuke him, but he spoke to the gold and he called out destiny. You know, when I was 19, 18 years old, um, 10 years ago, it was in 2010, at the point in the story I was 18, but in 2010 I turned 19, so I'm 29 now, it's 10 years ago. Um, I was, really rebellious towards the Lord. I was not following him. Um, and I, for some reason, decided to go join a missions organization and to do a, a training school with an organization called Youth of the Mission. And made no sense that I went there, but I just wanted adventure, basically. I didn't know what I was doing. And about four weeks in, I'm seriously, I suck, okay? Like, I am not kind. I am not acting like Jesus. I am not, like, there's all, there's, I was not edifying or fun to be around. I was I was, I was broken. And about 
four weeks in, there's a guy who comes and starts teaching to us about the Father heart of God. I'm in a school, and he's teaching us about the Father heart of God. And the first day, he shares his personal testimony of coming to know Jesus. And he's talking about how when he was in high school, he was arrested and on house arrest for shoplifting, for like petty theft. And I was like, that's crazy, because like, that happened to me in high school. I was on house arrest for petty theft. I was like, that's nuts. Like, what are the chances, you know? And then he goes on to talk about how his girlfriend in high school had several abortions because she got pregnant and he'd gone her to have abortions. And that hit me at an even deeper place because just four months prior to that moment, my girlfriend had had an abortion with our pregnancy. And I had supported it and I had, you know, which was a mistake and big regret. But when he said that, I was like, oh my gosh, like how is he where he is today with that stuff in his past? And it just caused an openness in me, a vulnerability that I wasn't, I wasn't allowing before. This is all heart stuff, you guys. Like my heart was closed, then my heart started to open because I heard like I couldn't believe it. And I, God just spoke to me so clearly in that moment and said, Wilson, you're gonna be here for a while. <laughs> and what was he doing? Speaking destiny to me. Because he was saying, you're going to stay in YWAM for a while. Missions is going to be a big part of your life. And I stayed in YWAM for then two and a half years. And that day, broke up with my girlfriend and just went fully after God. And I've experienced, you know, that I am a new creation. All things are um, new. The oldest passed away for the first time. I always thought that was a metaphor. But then in this moment of obedience, I was like, oh my gosh, it's really true. And what I, just what I want to say is God didn't, he, he was intentional about what he spoke to me in that moment. He was convicting me to righteousness. Jesus talks about this, that the Holy Spirit comes to convict us to righteousness. And we're obsessed with the Holy Spirit convicting us of sin. <laughs> but Jesus dealt with sin really well on the cross. And he wants to convict us to the new reality and the new truth. Now, I do think that God will convict an unbeliever of sin for sure. But I think his, the Holy Spirit's focus with believers is to convict us to repent towards something, not to focus in on the, um, the brokenness. And so this is what happened with Saul. God called out the gold. He convicted him of destiny. He said, there's destiny on your life. And that is what drew Saul towards him. So... We, uh, to this point in the story, we're all cheering fanatically. We're like, do it, God. And we're like, this is amazing. God encountered Saul. That's so awesome. And we kind of would like end the story right there. And we'd be like, sweet, God encountered Saul. Right? That's what we'd say. And that's what changed Saul's life. But what I want to tell you is there's more to the story. In Acts, now let's pick up in verse 10. I have a mic drop moment coming. Don't, don't worry, Okay. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he may regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, shut up, go. <laughs> For he, is a cho he doesn't even respond to that. <laughs> he doesn't even go in on like your excuses. Just, just say this out loud. God doesn't care about my excuses. Yeah. 
Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples of Damascus and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues saying, he is the son of God. So I started this passage with the juxtaposition of verse 1 and 20, right? Breathing threats and murder towards Christians. Verse 20, becoming a Christian and preaching. And the question is, how did that happen? How did that transformation occur? And we all just saw the crazy encounter that Saul had on the road to Damascus, right? We, we love that. But the thing I don't want us to miss is that God chose a human being to co-labor and partner with him to consummate and complete this encounter. What would Saul's life have been like if Ananias hadn't gone? You know, like God wants to partner with us to bring encounter to people. We can't celebrate the God of encounter without signing up to be a participant. If we, wanna, if we cry out for encounter, we need to say, I will be an encounter. That's the truth, is that God has designed this system where the rarity is that he does the whole work sovereignly. Yeah. And I would just say this, that maybe, I mean, barely, like, think about angels. Angels are God's agents. God could just be doing this all by himself. Omnip, omnip, omnipotent, omnipresent, <laughs> you know, like, he doesn't need angels. He doesn't need to do it that way. But he's chosen a system where he sends angels to do his will. It's the same thing with us. He's chosen a system, a way of accomplishing his will and his kingdom and transformation that uses us as his agents. He uses us to do his will. We are to partner with God to bring the kingdom. This just blows my mind. And I think it's such a, it's not, it's not a deep enough belief for us that God wants to use us to partner. What we believe more is that I don't like talking to strangers. What we believe more is what will happen when I talk, ask them if I can pray for them. What we believe more is um, this is going to be awkward. I don't have the right words. That is a stronger belief for us. Let's just be honest. But let's repent. <laughs> Okay, and I'm not trying to like persecute us, but it's a stark reality to say, to, to realize that our beliefs dictate our behavior. Our beliefs dictate where our mind goes. And look, guys, not, I'm, I really hope no one feels condemned or shamed right now because that's not my intent. I'm actually loving you by pointing out a belief system and a lie that has permeated our thinking. If we were walking around with this radical awareness of the God of the universe wanting to partner with us, nothing could stop us. And if we sit back in union with him, we go, oh wow, I'm in union with Jesus. He wants to partner with me. This is gonna be amazing. This is gonna be great. Think about Ananias. Like, <laughs> does, has Jesus told any of us to go minister to a murderer of Christians yet? Like he had it pretty bad. Okay. So God wants to partner with you. God wants to partner with you. Romans 8, 17. 
Let's just pause and pray, okay, for a second. Father, we want to create new belief systems about our role on this planet. Just say this out loud if you want to. Say, Father, I repent and reject the belief that it's scary to share about you, that it's hard to be your witness. I reject the lie that because of my personality, this isn't normal for me. You define me, Jesus. I reject legalism and shame. And I embrace confidence, joy, hope, union with you to partner in bringing your kingdom. I'm a partner. You're the leader. I rest in this. So if I just bless everyone right now, and right now, in Jesus, I just break the lies off of us that um, that voice that sometimes spews fear and concern and um, anxiety around being a witness. I just break that right now in Jesus' name. And I say this to you, I free you and I bless you to be the evangelist you're called to be. I just free you from thinking you're supposed to be Robbie Dawkins, Wilson Cochran, Todd White, whoever else. And I just release confidence to be in your skin as an evangelist to be in your skin as a witness. I just, and I just bless you. I just say, we need your voice. The world needs you to be uniquely you in being a witness and sharing the gospel and loving people. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. So in Romans 8, it says, look, here's a belief system to establish. This isn't Romans 8. The God of the universe is in me and has called me to be a witness. Return to that. Constantly return to that. I want to get that established in my thinking. Buy the book, Victorious Emotions, if you don't know what a mindset is, belief system. Um, okay, really quick. Romans 8 says that we are co-heirs with Christ. We're not minority share owners with Christ. We are not the minority partner in the family business. We are co-heirs. Everything Jesus gets, we get. The same boldness that Jesus lived on earth with, we get that. In John 15, I love this explanation of our role. It's just good truth to see, and truth empowers us. John 15, 26, here's what Jesus says. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. So the Holy Spirit's going to come, and he's going to bear witness about me. And so, and you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. This is our role in the, this is part of our role in the family business is to bear witness. You were born to bear witness. This is who you are. This is, this is who we are. My wife and I try and pray for our neighbors. And a couple weeks ago, or about a month ago, our neighbor Lakeisha was over and she has her kids and our kids and her kids are playing and Jen and her are hanging out and talking and um, Jen just is like, I'm just going to ask her. I'm just going to be bold. And she's like, hey, do you want to get together and study, the, like read the Bible together? Like, let's, would you like to do that? Really putting herself out there. That's like, I was like, babe, come on. You could have just prayed for her or something like <laughs> that, going for the jugular. And um, she, and you know what our neighbor responds and says, 
I was just thinking the other day that I need to ask you if we can read the Bible together. You see, God had encountered her, but it was Jen's job to partner to bring the, count, the encounter to what God wanted it to be. Guys, when we think this way, it takes the pressure off of evangelism and sharing and being a witness. I'm just partnering. I'm just partnering. It doesn't mean that I need to partner like, and do every single person I see. She means like, hey God, where are you moving in my life? Outside of me, where you want me to join in as a partner. They then last week or I think it was two weeks ago, they spent two hours together on a Wednesday night just reading through the Bible. And Jen got to pray for her a bunch. And it was just like this crazy, illuminating, amazing experience for our neighbor that we just really, really, we really love her. And um, at the end, Jen prayed for her. And she's like, hey, like Jen asks her, what were you feeling as we prayed? And she just goes, you know, I don't know if you're gonna think I'm crazy, but I felt like all this heat in my hands. And Jen's like, no, you're not crazy. That's the Holy Spirit, like, come on. <laughs> so guys, we are called to just partner. It's, our yoke is easy when we look at it through part, the partnership lens, all right? The, the worldly interpretation of evangelism is you need to do something to make it happen. That's a worldly, fleshly, demonic mindset. That's the religious spirit preventing us from walking in our destiny and who we're supposed to be. Anytime you have that urge, don't do anything. Do not go pray for the person because what you're doing is you're reinforcing a bad um, belief system. When you act on a mind, when you act on a thought, you're giving that thought power. So pause and go, wait, why is that coming? I reject that lie. Father, are you wanting me to partner right now? Is that what's going on? Is this a partnership opportunity? And when you realize that he is, you'll realize, oh my goodness, I have Jesus inside of me. There's probably a 20 foot high angel behind me right now getting ready to go. Like, um, let's do this. I'm partnering. So you guys stand up. I just want to pray for us to be partners. That's what we want, Lord. We just want to be partners. That's all that I'm, that's all that I'm um, expecting of myself. That's all I'm expecting of my friends and the other believers, that we are to be partners with you. So we just say yes to partnership, God. What greater joy could we have than to partner with you? How incredible of an opportunity you're offering to us to work with you, Lord. We say yes, we say yes, we say yes. We want to be partners. Ignite passion in our heart to partner with you, to love and rescue a hurting world, to take people out of the power of Satan and into the power of God, out of the darkness, into the light. What a privilege we get, Lord. And right now, I just bind the religious spirit. I bind the false spirit of evangelism, whatever it is that brings pressure and condemnation. Get off in Jesus' name. Witnessing is a joy and a privilege. So we just say yes to you, Lord. And I just release simple steps to everyone in the room right now. Just give a simple, what's our next step in being a witness? Give them, I pray grace to be able to take thoughts captive, Lord. Give us extreme grace to take the accuser's voice captive and to pitch it. I bless you all as people who hear the Father well. You are a son, a daughter of God. You hear his voice well. In Jesus' name, amen. All right.